Hey guys. Hi everybody. Welcome back to Tell Me About It. As most of you know, I am your host, Jade Iovine. There are a lot of new ears with us this week, so if this is your first, second, or third time listening, thanks for stopping by. I'm so happy to have you. I just want to start off by thanking you guys so much for your loving responses to the Girls Next Door episode with Holly and Bridget. I just have to admit that that was probably one of the most fun and, quite frankly, easiest interviews I've ever done because I am just obsessed with that show. Like, when I say obsessed, I mean I know it better than I know most things, unfortunately. And I've just been following their lives since they left the mansion. So it was easy in the sense that I felt like I knew all the background. So everything I was looking for was just that dirt, you know, that juicy new information. And boy, did they deliver. I mean, oh, my God, the things that they said in that episode, I'm like still shook by. I loved it. We have a new episode this week that you guys are listening to right now, obviously, with none other than Jeannie Buss, who I love and adore. And she's such a legend, so I'm so excited for you guys to hear that. But I feel like we need to catch up a little bit first, like a little teeny-weeny bit. You can skip over this part if you really want to. But for those of you who want to just chat, I need to vent because you know I always vent to you guys. And as some of you know, I went to New York a couple weeks ago to be a guest on some other people's podcasts. And it turns out I love being a guest as much as I love hosting a podcast. So turns out I just love talking, actually. I went on Girls Gotta Eat, which is an incredible podcast hosted by Ashley and Raina, who I adore. And then I went on Hannah Burner's podcast, uh, Burning in Hell. So I'll link those episodes so you guys can listen. There was incredible feedback from those episodes, and I'm so grateful. But, 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 but a little humbling moment for me when I was really riding the wave of feeling good from those episodes, Hannah posted a little clip on her TikTok. And it was like kind of out of context. And if you listen to the show, you know that I'm not serious about 99% of the things that I say. But I was talking about Botox like very openly and just like I obviously am not a doctor, but I was talking about it openly. And she posted on TikTok and I'm like an Instagram girly. Like I go on TikTok and I'm more of a voyeur on TikTok, meaning like I watch intensely, but like don't post myself. Whereas on Instagram, it's a little more interactive. I feel safer there. And it turns out rightfully so, because TikTok is like the greatest thing of all time as far as like the content that people are creating and people are so creative and real and cool and hilarious. And I love it for that. But I don't know that I'm ever going to post on TikTok ever again because the feedback that this video got, I mean, it brought me to my knees. I mean, I really don't care much what people think or I try to think that I don't. I do. I'm totally lying to you. But let's just go with that. I really try not to care too much about what the negative things people say. But people came for my ass. Like people (laughs) really came for me. And oh, my God, the things that people are comfortable saying to other people is just beyond me. Like people were so up in arms about the Botox conversation. So while I won't apologize for what I said at all, I do have to say, oh, my God, enter at your own risk for TikTok because it is a little meaner than Instagram, I'm finding. But we're over it. Honestly, just talking to you guys about it now, I'm officially over it. I can't talk about it anymore. It makes me nauseous. So back to the good stuff. People are the worst. TikTok is a dangerous place. All's well in the world because most importantly, we have Jeannie Buss, the queen of Los Angeles on the show today. I am born and raised in LA and grew up going to Laker games. So this was a pinch me moment for sure. I think Dylan, my fiance, who most of you know, asked me like 15 times if he could sit in on this interview and I politely declined. But I'm so happy that so many of you were excited to hear this interview. So I feel like most of the time she's interviewed from a sports perspective, like what her relationship is like with other players and other athletes and other people on the management team. But this interview is different. This is pure Jeannie. This is Jeannie's life. Jeannie, we do focus on Jeannie's relationships with certain people in the Lakers world, but from a different perspective. And it was so refreshing to hear all of her thoughts. She's had such a wild and fascinating life that... There's just so much for us to discuss about today's episode. But if you guys don't know who Jeannie is, Jeannie Buss is the controlling owner and president of the Los Angeles Lakers. She formerly served as the president of the Great Western Forum before becoming vice president of the Lakers. Her father, Jerry Buss, who bought the Lakers in the 70s, died of cancer in 2013. 
His 66% controlling ownership was eventually distributed among his six children, including Jeannie, through a trust, with each of them being granted an equal vote. According to Jerry's succession plan, Jeannie was supposed to be the Lakers governor and the team representative at NBA Board of Governors meetings, the positions that Jerry held when he was alive. In 2013 and 14, she began her tenure as the president of the Lakers, and in 2020, she became the first female controlling owner to guide her team, the Lakers, to an NBA championship. I actually asked Jeannie if she'd ever watched Succession because her family's dynamic that was portrayed on the Hulu docuseries that just came out, Legacy, I mean, there are so many, too many parallels. And I was like, if you ever watch that show, it must be the most triggering thing in the world. She admitted she didn't, which is probably for the best. But needless to say, working so intimately with your family leaves room for a lot of uh, conflict. And the Buzz family has definitely seen their fair share. A lot of people are familiar with the specific conflict between Jeannie and her brother Jimmy that resulted in her firing him because she was worried he'd make trades the Lakers couldn't recover from. In response, Jeannie's brothers actually sued her and mounted a campaign to remove Jeannie from her position. We talked about that decision, how she cried every day, where she and her brother stand now, and how she feels today about what she did now that the dust has somewhat settled. As the president of the Lakers, Jeannie is one of the most powerful women in professional sports, and the true story of the L.A. Lakers is her origin story as well. I really didn't expect Jeannie to be as real and vulnerable as she was in this interview, and uh, she just blew me away. This is a gift to all the women out there because there's something for all of us to learn from her story and her strength throughout her entire career and her life. And I'm so grateful that she came on. I mean, what an incredible opportunity it was to interview her. So enough of me telling you about the episode. I know, I know you guys are all like, Jade, please, for the love of God, let us get to it. So let's do just that. Let's welcome Jeannie Buss. Hi, Jeannie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is, it's an honor for me. And we have so much similar in growing up. Our age difference is big, but like our backgrounds are growing up. So I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with you. No, we have, we definitely have a lot in common, especially being just born and raised in LA. So you grew up in the Palisades. You're a Palisades girl. Yeah. I was Miss Palisades of 1979. No, you were not. (laughs) Stop. They didn't include that in the documentary. They really should have. <laughs> I think that, that's, that's only fun for me to say. Like, oh, my God. No, that's upstairs. amazing. So our, actually, our lives have a few more parallels. The most notable one being you are one of four. You're one of six, really. But your dad had two kids in a different marriage. I am one of four. And we are all Jays also. I, I I saw that. And what was the theory behind why are you guys all J's? Honestly, I don't know. But my poor mother is the only one that was like left out. Is that the same with you guys? Like, because it's my dad and then the four of us. Well, no, my mom's name was Joanne. So it just started on the all J's and then just kept going. Yeah. I mean, with the first two kids, you can kind of say, oh, it was an accident. We just liked how those names sounded together. But then by baby three and four, you're locked in. You you can't choose any other letter. Exactly. (laughs) You have a Janie and a Jeannie. Yes. And our middle names are the same, Marie. And so many people think we're the same person. Like, because there's only one letter that's different in her name. So it's caused a lot of confusion. And, you know, with my mom, she would, she would say, you know, Jeannie, Janie, Jimmy. That's exactly. Like, we'd answer it at whatever name. Like, cause she could. That's what we always say about my dad. He's always like, Jamie, Jessica, J- J-, and he like never even gets to my name. I'm just like, yes, I know you're talking to me. I understand. But what was that like psychologically that made our parents do that? Cause we have almost matching middle names, me and my siblings. We're all JVI. Mm. It's very bizarre. I don't know if it's like a narcissistic thing. That I, well, I, I mean, I, I could literally tell you why, because my dad, well, first of all, my dad's real name is Jerry. And people kept saying, well, what's your real name? Jerry's a nickname. Is it Gerald, Jerome? Like, what's your real name? And he's like, no, Jerry's my real name. So he named us really all by nicknames. In other words, my real name isn't Jean. It's really Jeannie on my birth certificate. And I think for my dad, you know, and we do talk about it in the documentary that 
his mom remarried when he was very young and then his mom had two more children, but his stepfather wouldn't adopt him. And so all his siblings had the last name Brown mm. and his last name was Bus. So oh. he, he always felt like he never fit in, even in his own family. And I think that's why the J names made it very clear that we were family. Oh, I'm going to steal your reason. That's a better okay. reason than mine. I think my parents were just not creative or something. That's so sweet because he wanted to feel like a proud family unit. So as I told you, I actually finished all nine episodes of the Hulu documentary, Legacy, that just came out. And I thought it was finished. Like, I thought I would get to watch the 10th episode. It doesn't come out until Sunday. That's right. <laughs> okay, so by the time this airs, it will have come out. But I am watching it, and it is... Because I watched the other one that people played you. Oh, Winning Times. Like yes. the scripted HBO series. Yes. That we had nothing to do with. Right. Let the record show. But I feel like this one is really an intimate look on like your family, your dynamics, and so much of your story, which I was so fascinated by. Well, it was really important. This was the story of the Lakers from when Dr. Buss bought the team in 1979. Yes. So it may be confusing when people think it's a Laker documentary about the history of the Lakers, it's not, it's only like this 40 year period from when my dad bought the team and the ups and downs and the Showtime era, the Magic Johnson. And we could have filled many more hours with all the different things. It's really incredible. But what was important to me was that people know kind of like why my dad created what he did and what was important to him and why the Laker girls, a lot of people don't know that the Laker girls were the first dance squad in the NBA and the NBA tried to stop him from doing that, that he wanted to put on a show. He really, he understood that sports is entertainment and that Mm -hmm. you kind of have to like marry them together in order to have the kind of following and fan base that the Lakers have created here. And growing up in LA, especially with the courtside culture and my dad had seats and the whole thing, I expected that every team was like that and that it was let, you know, that much of showmanship. And it feels like a parade when you go there. You know what I mean? It's like this big party. And I thought that was like every team, but it wasn't. And it really was your dad's idea and his legacy. It's so crazy to see the backstory of it all. Was there anything that you were, we're going to get into like your whole life, but I'm just curious from the jump, was there anything that I know like your whole life, you're like, oh Jesus. Um, (laughs) Was there anything that you were like hesitant to share that made it into the documentary? Yeah. I mean, actually there, there's something that will be told in the final episode that people haven't really heard about yet. Mm. And so that, that was kind of a, an internal discussion of, is this really the right place? And I think we did the right thing. So you, you know. Oh my God, that's quite the cliffhanger. Okay. I'm excited. There are so many layers within the Laker world and then your whole family, which is something I want to unpack with you. So you're one of six siblings. You have four full siblings and two half brothers, two more J's, but you guys grew up in the Palisades. Your parents were together until what age? Probably I was in fourth or fifth grade. Okay. So, you know, 10 or 11. And that was a any child of divorce I'm one of them. knows the trauma that it causes. And, and back when I was growing up, there was like this theory that you protected children from any bad news. Like you never told kids anything about divorce. Right. And so I didn't realize that my parents were separated because my dad would come home on weekends and I would see him then. But when I would go over to my friend Megan's house and her dad was home during the week, I was like, why isn't your dad at the office? (laughs) Right. You're like, why is he home all the time? (laughs) Because that's what my mom said. Oh, your dad's at the office. Like that's what we heard. So, okay. And I think the way they handled it was right at the time, but it really just kind of left me feeling abandoned, like not really knowing what was happening. And I talked about even kids would ask me where my dad was, where my dad was. And I finally just said, he's dead. 
I didn't know how to answer the question because I couldn't keep saying he's at the office. And that's something that any child that's gone through divorce can relate to, except I think nowadays it's out in the open. You talk Mm -hmm. about it. Kids know that their mother loves them. Their father loves them. Mm -hmm. They're just not together anymore. And it becomes much easier for a child to process. Right. I remember hearing that you, you know, would ask your dad, are you Superman? Because he would just fly in at random times and you didn't know when to expect him. Yeah. And that's exactly what I thought he was. He was just like this character that came in my life when and something fun happened. So were you angry with your dad for not being around as much? Did you inherit any of your mom's anger? Yeah. I mean, in in retrospect, I think I've had the luxury of going through therapy, Mm -hmm. which I recommend that anybody that has that opportunity should take it and kind of understanding where she was coming from and what she had gone through. And it helped me have more compassion, putting myself in her shoes and just really not knowing how to really handle a bunch of kids who were, we were all like about two years apart. So she had four kids under the age of 12 needing her attention. And here she's going through a divorce. It it had to be really tough on her. Right. That was the same with my family. We're all like exactly two years apart. I mean, I have so many questions about your childhood because first of all, is it hard for you to watch Succession? Have you ever seen that show? (laughs) Do you know how many times people ask me if I watch it? (laughs) And I don't. You can't. I don't, which is, I probably should because we're often compared to that. And it's a family business. That's what happens in a family business. Right. So like what age did you reconnect with him or have a stronger relationship with him more when you guys were of the age where you could work with him? And what age was that? I started working for my dad when I was 18. And when I graduated from high school, from Palisades High School, I went to the University of Southern California, USC. So that summer, I went to go live with my dad in between high school and college. And we had such a great time that summer. He had just bought the teams and the forum. And so then when it was time for me to go to school, I was going to move back home to the Palisades. And my dad said, we've had such a great time. Why don't you just stay here? Why don't you live with me while you go to school? And I was like, okay, that would be great. And and he said, but you know, I'm going to have to get a bigger house. So he went and he started looking at houses and he called me one day and he said, meet me at the polo lounge. So <laughs> yes. Meet me at the polo lounge. We're going to have lunch. And then we're going to go look at this house. It's, it's some old movie star house that like, I, you know, and I go, you mean Pickfair? You know, the Mary Pickford Douglas Fairbanks house? He goes, yeah, yeah, we're going to go see that. So I brought my camera with me because I made him take a picture of me in every room of the house because I was <laughs> such a big movie fan. Yeah. Just the idea that I got to visit the house. So he put an offer. It was in probate because she had died a couple of years earlier. And part of her will was that the house had to be sold and the money go to charity. And he put in an offer because it was like three and a half acres in prime Beverly Hills real estate. And they were asking, I think, eight million. He put in a bid at five million for what he thought the land was worth. And they took it. Wow. So Next thing I know, we're living in this old movie star mansion, Pickfair, and just the idea that we lived in this house and all the stuff that went on. My dad was famous in sports, but all of a sudden he became in the society pages and we were doing charity events at the house and and people really were so curious about the house because they called it the White House of the West. Every dignitary that came through L.A., had to go to see, pay their respects to Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, who were like the king and queen of Hollywood in the silent era. And, you know, it was just the history. I just soaked it all in. So we we just had this great experience for the, the six years that I lived with him after high school. We made up for a lot of lost time. I was gonna say, did you guys feel like you made up for lost time? Because when you have a dad that's as busy as your dad is, it's not just you don't get the average amount of time with him. You're also one of four kids. There's a lot of fighting for attention or like fighting, you know, like to have the special time with him. And so the fact that you could live with him for those years is so special. 
So mm-hmm. do you feel like before you guys got all into the business, because we, of course, there was competition there and ri- sibling rivalry there. Do you remember there being any potent rivalry growing up between the four of you? You know, I, I never looked at it that way. I mean, I think my dad loved his kids equally. I never felt like I had to earn it. Or if my sister got his attention, then there was less for me. I never felt like that. So just hanging around my dad was fun. He just knew how to have fun and and he wanted everybody around him to have a good time as well. So I'm not a competitive person. I know that sounds weird being in this (laughs) business, but I just don't look at things like that. Yeah. You almost like can't be when there's one, when you're one of four, you're like, you know what, if we, if someone wins, we all win, you know, right? was there ever a question or was it like a, was it a conversation that you had where your dad said, you're all going to come work for me or did it just happen that way? Um, he always wanted to include everybody. And if he wanted to be in the business, then he would find something that would suit your personality. Okay. Or if you didn't want to work, you didn't have to work either. Mm-hmm. He he came from such humble means and he didn't really have anything growing up that he wanted us to have the opposite, you know, not to have that pressure of finding a job, getting through school. You know, and and that's some people would say that's not the right way to be. Like you mm-hmm. should push your children to, you know, accomplish the most they can. But he just that wasn't his philosophy in raising kids. He just wanted us to be happy. Something I really want to focus on. We haven't talked about it on the show before, but just being a child of divorce myself, I think the biggest fear oftentimes, and I'm so glad that you guys touched on this in the docuseries, is this idea of the second family, right? So you're one of four and you guys have been through, you know, all of this stuff and you guys are, you know, now working with your dad and your dad, does he get remarried or does he just have two kids? He just had two okay, children. He so did he had, not marry again. Right? Okay. So he had two sons. And I love that you said in the documentary that watching your dad with your little brothers made you realize the stuff that he maybe missed out on in your childhood. And I think that's such a common, not talked about enough concept because it really is difficult. It made me, I was happy for him that he could fulfill that part because he he missed out on a lot. And I didn't feel sad for me. I felt happy for him. So I, I didn't feel like, he should miss out on theirs too because he missed out on my sporting events or pageants right. or whatever else that I was doing, right? Like, But you can't help but be a little jealous maybe at times, right? I mean, I was, but I didn't look at it like, oh, he chose them right. over me. It right. wasn't a choice, but I'm glad he had that in his life because he missed out on it for his older kids. Mm-hmm. They got a different dad. He was just in a different place in his career. He wasn't working as much. He just had a different outlook on life because he accomplished what he wanted to accomplish and now could be reflective and passing it on to the next generation. And we had conversations about it when the first one was on the way. He said, my goal is to be alive when they graduate, when he graduates from high school, that I'll still be here. And that's poignant because my half brothers lost their dad in their twenties. I got, a, I had him until, you know, I was in my fifties. So that's, that's a huge amount of time that they're not going to have him. And so I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. How old was he when he had your brothers? He must've been like 50 something okay. years old. And, you know, of course he definitely saw them graduate from high school. Right. And my oldest, half-brother had just had a baby when Mm. when my dad was close to his end. So, I mean, that's a long time to go, especially for young men to lose their father in their 20s is a huge loss. I mean, it's a loss for anybody to lose a father. Like, you know, it's never... Never a good time to lose a parent. It's it's heartbreaking. And so I I feel for them. And especially someone who is so 
full of life. That's such this beacon of light in all of your lives. Like that was the sun, essentially, that everyone orbited around. What a loss at any age. Did you feel like growing up that if you hadn't shown interest in the Lakers or in your dad's and any of the other teams or in the forum, were you ever maybe subconsciously worried that your relationship with your dad would suffer? No, I just, I loved being around him and I, I never went to work thinking, oh, someday I'm going to run the Lakers. Mm-hmm. Like I know it may, it kind of makes it sound like that in the, the docu-series, but what, what was important to me was that I was in the family business and every day I would say to my dad, how can I help? Like, what can I do today to help you? You're so busy and whatever, however it ended up, whatever he put me on, he sent me to Russia in the eighties to like negotiate with the Russians. <laughs> like it was like, and I look back, I was like 24 years old. Like what the hell am I doing in Russia? <laughs> but no, that is so crazy. He wanted to bring events from you know, like the Moscow Circus and the right. Leningrad Ice Ballet. And he just, he challenged me. And so right. I loved the challenges and I loved, you know, I loved working for him. And so it wasn't about like, oh, someday I want to run the Lakers. It was never about that. It was about contributing to the family business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The basketball season is only so many days, you know, and so he needed to program the forum for the rest of the nights. But it's so also so beautiful that he believed in you so much, you know, that he instilled that confidence in you almost like in a subconscious way. I tell the story about when I was 11 years old, you know, after school, they took me to his office to hang out with him. And he, he wanted me to see something on the TV. So he turned on the TV. I'll never forget. He pointed at the TV and he said, I want you to watch this because this is going to change the world. And what it was, was Billie Jean King playing Bobby Riggs in the battle of the sexes. And, you know, when your dad tells you that it's like, what is this? Right. And it blew my mind because I'd never seen a female competing against a man, like what was possible. And, you know, this is the seventies. And so, you know, feminism and, and women empowerment, like he was way ahead of the curve and he wanted me to see this is what's possible. Like, don't ever put a lid on yourself because this is possible. And he, he wanted me to see, always see the bigger picture. So I was blessed to have a father who empowered me and believed in me. Right. Yeah. I mean, because of the position that you're in, which we'll get into in a minute, you are in a man's world. So it's kind of nice that while he did treat you like one of the boys or like just anyone, he did acknowledge that there was a difference and that like he wanted to empower you to to rise to this occasion. Do you think just in hindsight, do you think that this was always his plan for you to take over or when do you think it switched? He talked to me, the process that he went through, because people have to understand too, when, when you are leaving an asset, the size of something like a sports team, that usually when, when the owner passes away, there's a huge estate tax Mm -hmm. that is owed to the government. And many families have to sell that asset in order to pay the taxes. So he, he didn't want that to happen to us. So for 10 years, he, created a trust. And as he transferred ownership into the trust, he would pay the estate taxes. Mm. So he did it very specifically and methodically over a 10-year period so that the family would be able to keep the team if we wanted to. And that was really special. And he told me in all these years, as he was doing this, his estate planning, that he ultimately would leave me in charge. And what that means is that in the NBA, they recognize one owner. There's only one voice that can bind the team to any business decision, basketball decision, because if you have partners that are in a dispute, who do you listen to? And if you have, if you're in a dispute in a partnership, then you can't operate a team because there's nobody making a decision. There's constant fight and conflict. So in the NBA, they recognize one owner. And my dad said that it would be me. And, you know, I, I never really thought about it. I was like, dad, you're not going anywhere. You know, why are you telling me this? And if he had changed his mind, 
I wouldn't have cared. That wasn't my end goal. Mm. My end goal was to, to just take care of the family business, however he wanted me to. Wow. But then as, as it played out, I was legally in charge and was challenged by my siblings right. and had to go to court. And, you know, the judge quickly ruled that's exactly what the trust says and, and, uh, you know, to give it that, that clarity. And I think that my dad didn't explain it to my siblings because he didn't want the conflict. He didn't want them all to say, well, why not me? Wow. He didn't want to see that kind of fighting. And he knew that I was a, a balanced person and I would approach things and always put the business first and everything else would take care of itself. Was there ever any part of you, because it was kind of a surprise to your siblings and because of the wrath that you endured after, you know, with your siblings trying to take you off the board and everything, was there ever a piece of you that was like, why did you leave me to handle all of this? And why didn't you tell them before? Um, yes. You know, anybody who's been through it in a family business, the majority of businesses in the United States are family owned. So I think this plays out in many different ways just in, in this instance. And in conversations with my dad, he said to me, he literally said, I'm sorry to do this to you. I'm sorry that I'm doing this to you, but like, you're the one I know will do what's needed to be done and you'll do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So then all that burden fell on your shoulders and suddenly you're trying to navigate a business world, but also a familial relationship. So within the bus family, meaning you and your siblings and your parents, was there ever just a barbecue or a family time where the Lakers actually weren't brought up? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I had growing up, we played board games and Monopoly and all that kind of stuff and had water balloon fights in the summer and all that kind of stuff. So we're pretty much a normal family that way. But, you know, heavily our activities around sports, like when I was growing up, we would go to horse races every day. And I love when, you know, when, when you're a kid, you don't, realize what the horses are going through. I, right. Now I, yeah, I have exactly. a hard time right. watching, you know, horse, horses run. Um, they're such beautiful animals and, and it's scary when they get hurt. But, you know, that's how we kind of spent our time as kids, F- USC football games, USC mm-hmm. track events. And then when my dad bought the Lakers and, the, and then he bought the LA Kings hockey team right. and getting involved in all the roller hockey, indoor soccer, volleyball, tennis, and whatever else you could put in the forum. Everything. It was yes. a lot. It was a lot. Truly everything. So I know like you guys have kind of buried the hatchet and things have calmed down since you had to, I don't want to say fire your brother, but you had to let your brother go off of the out of his position. Did the documentary bring any of that to light again? Did it ruffle feathers again? No, it's actually been very healing mm. because everybody had their opportunity to share their story and their version of the story. And I promise you that my brother thought what he was doing was right. Like he had in his mind, there was a reason he did what he did. And what's important in, in this kind of a business is that you have the clarity of who's in charge and right. you have the proper pecking order. So it wasn't so much that he had to be fired. It was it was to give things clarity. Right. So he was moved out of that position. Mm-hmm. And so that the team, the players, the coaches would know who's in charge. Right. Would you say that that was the hardest decision that you've had to make in your position? Yes. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it was three, four years of soul searching, of Mm -hmm. really not wanting to have to make that decision, but knowing as we got closer that it was inevitable that I had to do it. You had no choice. So I admire you for, I mean, so many reasons. You, I, I know so many people that admire you, but I love how unapologetically you carved your way into this man's world. First of all, let's just start at the beginning. I love that you posed for Playboy. My <laughs> mom was actually a centerfold in Playboy. So I have tremendous respect for all of that. But I just love, love, love and can't get over the fact 
that you shot your pictorial in the goddamn forum where the Lakers played. I mean, for me to be in Playboy was, it was a personal thing that I wanted to do. And there would be some people who would say, oh, you're going to make a mistake. It's going to hurt your career. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, wow, if that's really the case, that's not how people should be judged. And that really rubbed me the wrong way. And I, and, and this wasn't about a career move. This was about something that I wanted to do that if I didn't, because I was, I thought it would help my career or I wanted to please other people. You can't please everybody. No. So now I'm living my life trying to please people that will never be pleased. Right. And I would regret not having done it. And totally. I had to go through just like every other model. I had to go through a test photo shoot. I had to be approved by Chicago, whether they wanted me in the magazine or not. And so I'm really a shy person. And it was something that I had to to do to kind of break free out of being so self-conscious all the time. And it was, you know, I was 32 years old when I did it. I'd been married and, you know, was going through a divorce and it was just the right time. It was the right thing for me, but it was also the early nineties. And I didn't know the internet was going to be what it is today. So I, I, you know, and I, you know, it's funny that your mom was a centerfold because I knew a few of the, the different playmates that were centerfolds and they said, you know, Jeannie, if you do this, just know that anytime, any place, somebody will walk up and want your autograph on It'll be the, that. the magazine. <laughs> yeah. And so I get still to this day, people mail me copies of the the magazine, copies yeah. of the picture to autograph. And I always autograph them and send them back. Like, it's not something that I'm going to apologize now for. But if I'd have known that it'd be so easy to <laughs> access. Yes. Like, maybe I would have thought differently. But. No, but that's what I love so much is that everyone wanted you to apologize, but you refused because you knew that this meant in some capacity that this was liberation for you, that this yeah. was something that you had to do after your divorce. And I just feel like that is such an incredible thing. I think so many people in a man's world would try to conform. And would try to convince others that they are men too and that they can hang. And you were like, no, I am a woman, yep. you know, and this is what I'm going to do. Right. That was an important part of my development to go through. And yes. I, I'm glad I did. I have no regrets about no, that. No. Oh my God. How could you? I think that that's such a vital moment in your career. I just have to give you props for doing that because I love, <laughs> it's like you ha- you guys have to see these pictures. They're like, you look stunning. No, you don't. No, you, you don't. Don't. No, <laughs> don't Google me. Don't Google, Google me. Google right now. No, I know. And it's also like a different, I love how you talk about it. It's a different hair time, different hair oh, situation yeah. <laughs> that my mom deals with that too. She's like, I swear it was part of the times. So I want to talk to you about being a woman that's posed in Playboy and being just a solid, I am woman, hear me roar. Of course, you had some great experiences with players and other people that work in the business, but you are also, in addition to being a woman, you are the boss's daughter. Which identity do you think caused a bigger rift or was a tougher hill for you to climb? Um, I think I think any kid that's the kid of the boss has unfair pressure put on them and really has to almost overcompensate mm-hmm. for their position and they have more to prove. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's even worse for boys, you yeah. know, men to go through that, to be the son of the boss. Absolutely. Because people don't think that you deserve to be there. And But something else that I love that you did unapologetically is when you started dating Phil Jackson. You are just iconic in so many ways. Like, I just love that you knew how intelligent you were. You were so confident in your capabilities that you never tried to hide behind anything else or change any of your behavior or, like, your callings because of the way that it would make other people feel. Like, you just steadfastly moved forward. Were you terrified to tell your dad that you were dating the head coach of the Lakers? Yeah, I was I was worried about it and... I was worried about, you know, the entire organization that I didn't want anybody to feel compromised. That's why with Phil, you know, we knew there was a spark between us and we 
had the conversation before we took the next step till we went on a date. Because I said to him, if this isn't something serious and that has full disclosure, it could really hurt the team. It could hurt your career, hurt my career. And I think we, by being transparent and telling the truth and being truthful, it may be awkward at some point, but then it would stabilize and and actually pay dividends that people knew are standing. Right. And you kind of believed that it would all work out in the long run. In love, you have to hope that it works out. Yes. No, I just mean as far as telling people, like you just thought that they would all calm down eventually, right? Right. And and with Phil, it was the most important relationship in my life. Mm -hmm. And it was, it came at a point in my life where I was searching for truth. There's so many great things about him, but he was, he was a teacher and he was very Zen. And because I was a passionate person about my work, I think that's what he respected, even though there's a 15 year age difference. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that was the most difficult was because he had been married twice before and had children, he did not want to have children. And, and I think that kind of had to play out in our relationship too, that when he ended up leaving and going to New York, that we didn't have that a child that would have brought us together and we grew apart, but we're friends, you know? No, that was something that I actually took note of when I was watching the docu-series was how incredible and impressive your and Phil's relationship is now. But I really want to unpack the kids thing because I just so strongly believe that we need so much more representation of badass women who just decide that that path isn't for them. Do you remember making a conscious decision that that wasn't going to be part of your journey or did you just realize it over time? You know, for me, I think what's important, and I'm glad we're discussing it because I agree with you. I think more discussion needs to be had. And and I think what's important is everybody should make the best decision for them Mm -hmm. because, and we shouldn't judge because in, in the eighties, you know, there was movies like working girl and, you know, like you can have it all. And like, Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of pressure on women to be able to do everything, like, why not, you know, freeze your eggs, do the, like, and, and, you know, and get that promotion and write that book. And for me, I, I didn't want to do anything at a C plus level. It's like, if I did something, I wanted to to get an A and I, I, I'm not a multitasker. I'm a horrible multitasker. And so I'd rather just have single focus and do something really well and be proud of it than like be scattered and feel like you're like that person twirling the plates and like right. keeping them all moving That's and always playing catch up. Yes. Always playing catch up. Like, yes, do it. And I think that's so important for you to say, because other people might say, well, like, well, I work and I have kids and it's, that's the thing is it's not your, your life. You know what I mean? It is your decision based on what you know, your capabilities are, how you know, you function best. If like I had gotten pregnant, I probably mm-hmm. would have been happy. Right. But like at my age and his age, like we would have needed more intervention mm-hmm. and, you know, and it would have been that much more difficult to have right. a child. Right. And it just wasn't in the cards for us. Right. And I think, I just feel like it's so important to talk about because I think a lot of people, there just isn't enough visibility into that world. It's not like it was impossible for you to have kids. It's just that your life went in a different way. And often, oftentimes how a man's life goes in a different way and no one says boo about it. You know, it's just because you're a woman. How, like, do you get that question so often and do you want to throw something at the person asking you? (laughs) No, no. Because I think, I think it's good to talk about it. And then like everybody gets to make their own decision and I'm not going to, you know, judge somebody else right. who did do it all and, and became president of the United States. God bless and, like, you. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. I just couldn't do that. There's exactly. no way. And, and so I'm glad, but you know, for me, when Phil was coaching the team, mm-hmm. I kind of became team mom mm-hmm. and I got the relationships that I had with Kobe and Pau right. Gasol and Lamar Odom, yes. you know, I felt like 
I was kind of like their mom right. because Phil was kind of like their dad. And, and that was very satisfying for me. I, I really enjoyed that, that aspect of it. And it was a special time of my life for sure. Yeah. Let's talk about the hard parts of your job. So what was the closest you've ever come to quitting? Um, I think just in the conflict with my brother, there was a point where, you know, Phil came back twice as coach and there was a chance that he'd come back a third time. Right. And that was kind of the start of the problem with my brother. And and it it hurt because the idea of Phil coming back and coaching Kobe again and, and maybe having a chance at a championship before my dad passed away. And they kind of pulled the rug out from Phil and it, it just hurt. And I, I cried every day. And I don't know if you've ever had that where you cry and it's like, just tears are coming out of your eyes. Like, it's not like you're like boo-hoo crying. It's just, you can't stop the right. tears. Yes. Oh, it's awful. How long did that last? That was three months. Like yeah. I was like that. I was devastated. Because it's your family and your career and your love life. Oh my God. It's literally everything at once. That's impossible to take. Who did you rely on during those times? My best friends, mm -hmm. uh, my therapist, yes. <laughs> my dog. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Princess Cujo. <laughs> yeah. Princess Cujo. Genius. <laughs> She's great. I love that so much. So when your dad passed, what was that grieving process like for you? And what's it like today? Someone had told me who had lost a parent that when they get older, any time that you have that you can spare to spend with that parent, you will never regret. Right. So that always stuck with me. And so, you know, my dad was in the hospital for over a year wow. and I just went every day you know, we had some great conversations and, you know, it was, it was tough because the way my dad passed was his mind was great, but it was Ugh. cancer ravaged his body. Right. So his body gave out and it was kind of the opposite with my mom. Her mind kind of went and, you know, her body was fine. Right. So I don't know which is worse, but I would pass on to anybody the same wisdom that someone gave me is like spend time just spend time because you will not regret it. And, and I had that peace and it's hard. It's hard to see the man that I thought was Superman, you know, in bed oh and that he wasn't going to make it and, and coming to that realization, it's, it's a hard process, but we all go through in losing a parent. Right. But it's so nice that you do look back and you think like, I did spend so much time with him. Anytime that I could, I was with him. You have so many memories with him. There really was, there's probably not that flavor of regret. Do you still like dream about him? I do. Isn't <laughs> I do. that wild? And it's, and, and then someone told me, you know, another smart person said like, as time goes on, you will remember your dad as your dad, not what you know, him being sick and, right. and weak, it does come back. And that's the vision. You see the vital, healthy. That's at the forefront of your memory. Yeah. Energy. So he's been gone for about 10 years in February, right? Yep. So a few years after you lost your dad, you suffered another tremendous loss, which was the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gianna. I think I speak for this whole city when I say we are all still mourning that loss. And it was so tragic. And I imagine that it's especially for you who knew him so intimately, so painful to revisit. But I would be remiss not to ask about him because he is just this legend and is such a fundamental part of the Lakers and your career. What was your last memory of Kobe? Um, you know, that's that's kind of painful for me to talk mm -hmm. about. like getting the phone call and jumping in my car and Gianna, you could see she had that same drive that Kobe did. And there was one day Kobe and I were having lunch and he brought Gianna and he goes, I hope you don't mind. I brought Gianna because I wanted her to see you in action. 
to see a powerful woman. And this was shortly after my dad had passed away and Kobe knew I was struggling with like, this was a lot being put on my, my shoulders. And I think he's telling me he brought Gianna so that Gianna could see me. But I think it was, he was inspiring me because of the father daughter relationship and reminding me that I'm a role model and that I could be strong. That's the kind of, you know, Kobe had insight to his teammates and who he played with and how to get the best out of people. And I I really think that, that he was doing that to inspire me, that he brought Gianna to inspire me. So to lose both of them, it, it, devastating. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Cause no, that is so powerful because as, as you were, were a young girl at a time that looked at your dad, the way that she looked at Kobe and wanted to be like her dad. And a lot of people said like, Oh, what do you want a son to Kobe? And Kobe would be like, Nope, I have two daughters who are ju- just as capable. And your dad kind of had that same energy, which is right. such a gift, such an incredible thing. So in closing, We get so many questions about female roles in typically male-dominated industries. And quite frankly, you are the perfect person to ask about this. What is your advice for those women who work in male-dominated industries? I talk about this in the docuseries about when I first started at the board level at the NBA, there was a luncheon and we were in line at the buffet and and somebody grabbed my ass and I I turned around and and it wasn't like I was, you know, oh gosh, I'm worried somebody's going to sexually assault me. It wasn't like that. It was that he was reminding me I didn't belong. And that I think is the toughest thing for women in industry is that Whatever position you're in, if you work with a group of people, the guys will plan a golf outing or the guys will go to a strip club. And then and then what do you do? Like you can't unless you want to play golf, which, you know, the guys right. don't even think of asking you if you want to play golf. Right. right? Like it, it's just this divided mm-hmm. workforce and, and reminding you that you're like you're one of a few or, you know, you're, you're the only woman on the staff. And, you know, that, that's the part that can wear you down, but get it straight. You belong there. Nobody's going to tell you what, what you can and can't do, but they'll intimidate you and everybody's out for themselves, but don't buy into it. You know, you be you and don't lose sight of that and don't get caught up in the games because that's just gamesmanship. Yeah, it must be impossible. Like you can't even go in the locker room. Even little things like that. That's frustrating. So you have to like carve your own spot and like know like in your heart of hearts that you belong there despite what anyone tries to do to, to intimidate you or tell you otherwise. Right. I love that. Thank you so much, Jeannie. You are even better than I thought. I mean, I'm such a fan of yours. I just think you're unbelievable and I appreciate this so much. Well, I, I hope to see you at a game yes. or you know, meet you in person. And I really appreciate somebody at your age doing what you're doing. Oh, and, thank you. And, and being willing to listen to people, you know, wise be oh my years over. No, you have you know, so like, much to teach us. We have to meet in person sometime off the record so we can really get into the weeds because okay, we can go into more parallels good. of our life. Thank you. <laughs> 